turn also to the New Testament, the book of 1 Peter. Our text for this morning is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 16. First Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 16. This also is God's holy word. <clears throat> Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you as holy, you also be holy in all your, com- in your, all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. May we go to our God and ask for his blessings on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. Almighty God, we thank you, Father, that you are faithful to hear and to answer prayers. Father, we acknowledge that this life you have not designed to be a cake walk. You have not designed the life, Christian life, to be easy. And Father, we acknowledge that you have You have laid it out so in order that we might depend upon you all the more. That the Christian life is often difficult so that we might understand our frailty, our weakness, and our dependence upon you. That you would show yourself mighty and powerful. That we would be shown to be weak and dependent. And Father, we pray that you indeed would be exalted. Father, we pray that you would guide your people even on this path of sanctification. We acknowledge, Father, that it is not an easy path. And, Father, that you would continually turn our hearts away from our own ways, away from our own desires, but that we would do what is pleasing to you. We thank you, Father, that you have promised that you would never leave us nor forsake us. Father, we pray for your people, that if any are here who do not know Jesus Christ, who did not desire the path of righteousness. We pray, Father, that you would turn hearts and lives to you, that your Holy Spirit would do a mighty work of transformation, that we, your people, would embrace the good news of the gospel and desire Jesus above our sins. We thank you for your provision for us. We thank you, Father, for the exceedingly great gift that you've given us in Jesus Christ. We pray, Father that your son Jesus would be exalted, that your servant would be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. I recall back in the brief period that I lived in South Carolina, there was a, um, it was one of these public storage places right next to the seminary. And it wasn't one of these uh, national chains. It was like, you know, Bob's public storage. And uh, the seminary stored stuff there, and we needed it for our conference each year. And when this gate would open, the students and I found so hilarious that there was this guard dog, a pair of them, these guard dogs, that were so poorly trained that when the gate would open and they see us walking in, 
they wouldn't even get up. They would pick up their head, like they would lay down, and they'd pick up their head and they'd go, rawr, rawr, and then lay back down. And, and then we all had such, such a laugh at these two guard dogs because we had said, hey, they couldn't even get up to look, to look fierce or anything. All they could do was let out this meager little bark and then lay back down. And at times it, we find such scenes rather comical. Because here we're saying, hey, if there's a bad guy who's come in to steal things from this public storage site, they obviously would not have been intimidated by these watchdogs. But I, I think about our own Christian lives. The author of Hebrews, <clears throat> the author of Hebrews addresses this matter. You have not resisted your sins to the point of shedding of blood. Meaning, are you taking seriously? Are you taking seriously your fight, your struggle against sin? I think about these watchdogs, these guard dogs who crook their neck and let out a meager bark. Is, is that, would that describe our struggle against sin in our own lives? Of here the devil comes and we're going to rawr, rawr, and, and so we go, following down the path the devil has led us. I hope you can understand that sanctification, sanctification is a difficult path, but it is a path with great rewards. That God's people should desire to be like uh, our Lord Jesus, like the Father who has called us, like Jesus who has paid the price for our sins to set us free. In this book of First Peter, <clears throat> the apostle is dealing with his primary concern that about hope. Hope and joy. And you think about the various matters that he addresses. We have five chapters. How often in these chapters does he mention the matter of persecution, of suffering, uh, of, of loss? And he's reminding God's people that we must have hope. Because our Lord Jesus is coming back. That part of the Christian life is realizing that he has called us to something better. He's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That he's called a people of his very own. We think about the very promises of God that the gospel of Jesus Christ is indeed the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament promises. And God had called his people to be holy even as he is holy. And he desires that we, his people, would be a holy people in our conduct. So the truth that we see in this passage, in sanctification, God aborts your previous life of passions, but conforms and commands you to his thoroughgoing holiness. In sanctification, God aborts your previous life of passions, but conforms and commands you to his thoroughgoing holiness. We'll look at this in three points. <clears throat> The first, preparing for the promise in verse 13. Second, parting with the past in verse 14. And third, the paternal pattern in verses 15 and 16. So the first point, preparing for the promise in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
here. The, the mention in verse 13 of preparing your minds for action. This appears to be some type of a turning point in the book of 1 Peter. But he began with encouragements in chapter 1. And then starting from verse 13, there, therefore, meaning based on what I've told you, now listen up. Prepare your minds for action. That the idiom is gird up the loins of your mind. Uh, People used to walk back then with these long flowing robes or or togas type of things. And uh, these robes would get stuck and caught in various places. So when you had to do work, when you had to move quickly, then they would tuck in this clothing into their belt so so that they would not be held back. Tuck in the folds of your robe under your belt. And this applies to our minds and our thoughts. Let nothing hinder your mind as you set about your work. Think about some of the hindrances, the the fears that come up, the doubts that arise, uh, the present circumstances that you're facing. Perhaps you're dealing with hardship and grief and sadness. That these things are indeed part of our lives, all of our lives right now. And there's a call to be sober-minded. Now, my family, we were talking last night about being, what does it mean to be sober? And here, the contrast is not uh, unsober, which is drunken, to be intoxicated. That's, that's not what it's saying. Although, although this would be one application, is don't be drunken, of course. But to be sober-minded means that we are called to self-control regarding our thinking. We're not to be rash. We're not to be spastic in our thoughts. How often is it that you spend time thinking about all of the what-ifs in life? Or how bad will it be? Do you follow these conversations? Meaning, uh, this is called allowing fear to take root and to grip us and to control us. Meaning, I'm going to set about on a path where I'm going to try to control... Uh, the worst possible outcome. So the what ifs in life. Well, what if this were to happen? And perhaps it's late at night, you're in your bed, and you're starting to think through these what ifs. Well, I can tell you what's going to happen. You're not going to sleep well, because those what ifs will never come to an end. Part of being able to fall asleep is that we say, Lord, you're in control of my life. Right? Whatever fears I have going on right now as I close my eyes to go to sleep, well, same true for the next day and the next week and the next month. God controls every detail of your entire life. Nothing happens to or around you outside of His will. When we think about control freaks, Control freaks, this is an example of not being sober-minded. <clears throat> being sober-minded is coming to the realization we, we don't control anything. We only, we only have the appearance. We only have the appearance of control. That God is in control. We're in control of nothing. <clears throat> Psalm 46, verses 1 and 2. God is our refuge and strength. Very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear. Though the earth gives way. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. 
the mountains being moved in the heart of a sea, that seems like it would be quite uh, quite significant of event. Whether it be uh, a typhoon or some massive uh, uh, mishap, in, uh, earthquake or, or underground tsunami, whatever it is, in any of those events, are you trusting in the Lord who controls every detail of your life? The second half of verse 13 Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Meaning, oftentimes it ought to be that you and I should turn our thoughts away from our present circumstances. Meaning that we, we're stuck in, the, stuck in the weeds, right? And the Lord is saying, hey, don't get stuck in the weeds. You have to look at the bigger Picture, bigger perspective. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Meaning, Jesus will one day come back. Don't forget that Christ is coming back and you and I must be ready for his return. So, whatever little issues we're dealing with, however painful, very true. We have to look at all of those events in light of Jesus is coming back. And that when Jesus comes back and eternity begins, how much significance will this little problem, or perhaps what appears like a great big problem, what significance will that have for us today or for eternity? The answer is, if it's insignificant, if it's just a little speed bump, then this is part of being sober-minded. That we would not let those things hold us back. <clears throat> There's a reminder here. <clears throat> Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The good news of the gospel is not that if you try hard enough, God will forgive you. The good news of the gospel is that this grace in Jesus Christ is already yours. Is already yours. John 5.24 <clears throat> He who believes has already passed from death to life. You understand that truth? He who believes has already passed from death to life. It's not, hey, at some point God might let you pass from death to life. He who believes, he who is justified is already in Christ, united to Christ. And what God has already promised you, to him, he views these things as reality. You think about God meeting Abraham and Sarah. Think about, think about the conversation. Here God is saying, this time next year, you will have a son. And Sarah laughs. She laughs. And then she lies about it. And, and she lies about it in God's presence. And she says to him, no, no, I didn't laugh. And he says, no, no, you did laugh. Right? Hey, there's no lying to God. And, and here he, he says, hey, there's going to be a marker of this. Because this son that I promised you, this time next year you'll have a son. And his name will be Isaac. Can you imagine? This is what God does. Hey, you're, you laughed, but this will be a reminder to you, hey, that you laughed at me. You laughed at God's mighty power to provide. 
We ought to understand that for God and that birth, that life was as good as there. And when God makes promises, right, he, he considers them done. He considers them already a reality. Here, this concept of grace, very counterintuitive, the whole matter of the motivation of grace. So your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You might think that uh, the works principle is a great motivator, but it's not. It's not because it kills assurance and hope. It destroys it. The why is often overlooked by men of why, what motivates us. If the church were to say, you work hard enough, then you can earn your salvation. From a sinful human perspective, their thinking is, this will motivate the people. But the counterintuitive nature is that it's actually far worse. People are less motivated. Salvation? The false church says, work hard enough, you can earn it. Have your good outweigh your bad, and you might get into heaven. I mean, isn't, isn't this the summary of pretty much all world religions? That you work hard enough, and maybe you'll get into heaven? Well, think about the gospel motivation. You cannot earn it on your best day, so don't even consider your worst day. Jesus Christ has already paid the price for the sins of his, for the sins of his people. That which you and I are completely able, unable to do. That if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, that Jesus died on the cross. He died for my sins. He died for the sins of all the people who are trusting in him. And we're told that such a one, you're trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. You've passed from death to life. In the sanctification then, justification, God removes the guilt. He removes the guilt of sin, the judgment associated with sin, at least the eternal judgment. And in sanctification, God uh, removes the pollution. He is removing the pollution of sin. He cleanses you from pollution. And this gospel motivation actually works much better. Here he promises that we can have assurance. And the free offer, the promise of the gospel given to sinners is, is the offer, here, salvation is yours. Now live a life of gratitude to God. Lord, you have done this already for me. May I trust in you that you've called me out of darkness into your marvelous light. Isn't this every motivation that we ought to have to serve God and to serve him with a pure heart? We think about the sober-mindedness. Are you preoccupied with something? And are you distracted from your focus upon Christ? Being sober-minded means first having a sober view of yourself, especially in relation to the Almighty God. What is your place before God? Invariably, those who have a man-centered view will have a very high view of man and then a very low view of God. And having a low view of God, there will, there will necessarily be a low view of his law. And so, 
understanding who God is, who Jesus was, and who he called us to be. We should have a high view of God, a low view of self, a high view of his law, and then a very high view of the salvation that he has given us through his son. So this is the first point, preparing for the promise. We have the second point, parting with the past, in verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So, leave your past from before Christ. There ought to be a constant reminder to us. We hear it throughout the New Testament. This This this. Mention of the old self and the new self, the put off and the put on, the new creation, that you are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. That this repentance is likened to an obituary, meaning that when you repent, is as if you're writing your own obituary and you're saying, that man or that woman has died and I'm a new person and perhaps even the response when someone says hey weren't you the one who was caught in this scandal I mean it might be 20 years ago or maybe it was last month but with repentance you can say oh that's who I was that's not who I am anymore this is true Repentance, it's true in sanctification. And maybe the world has no response to that. They would say, no, once, once that, always that. But what they don't understand is that it is God who gives new life. What they can't explain is how the drunkard can leave his alcohol. They can't explain how the sinner who loved his sin no longer loves his sin and leaves it. They can't explain the... Uh, the, the guy who was possessed by demons, who was naked and screaming amok and cutting himself, and then after meeting Jesus, he is clothed and in his right mind. They, the world can't explain that because they don't understand those principles. They don't understand the God who gives spiritual life. <clears throat> the sanctification, there are two aspects of it. One is called definitive sanctification. This describes the decisive break uh, from your old self. A, a marked transition. Romans 6.2 How shall we who died to sin still live in it? He asks this question. He doesn't, he doesn't answer. The Apostle Paul doesn't answer that question because it's supposed to be a rhetorical question. Romans 6, verses 5 to 7. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. So this is the description, definitive sanctification of a marked transition. Uh, A change from death to life. Uh, A change from darkness to light. The old self, the new self. So that's one aspect. And regarding this 
leaving your past before Christ behind. We're told here in verse 14, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And the reasons are because you have been adopted by the Heavenly Father. Why is it that someone would leave behind their past? It's because we have a new father. It's no longer the father of the devil. It's our heavenly father. We serve a new master. And that God in his love uh, adopts not the very best, but God shows his grace and that he adopts even the very worst. And the list goes on. The Apostle Paul, various people. Hey, why is it that God chooses the very worst? He does so to set an example. Hey, listen, just so that any of you might doubt, I'm going to take a persecutor of the church and I'm going to turn him into an evangelist, an apostle of the church. Just so that you might know, hey, there's no sinner so bad he's outside of God's saving power. By your obedience to God's ways and to his word, you show yourself to be God's children, to be his adopted children. The former ways do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So here, two things are described. Passions, so our desires, our lusts, so this describes the person who lives according to the old self. They're driven by passions, their feelings. They're creatures of instinct. This is how I feel, right? So you think about even our culture, right? I've noticed that the start of sentence with I think is now passe, it's I feel. Because if someone thinks a certain way, well, you can reason with them. Maybe you can change their minds. But if someone feels a certain way, well, shoot, you can't do anything about that. There's no use arguing about it. And and so maybe that's the way things work now. People feel this way, well, I suppose that's your feeling. You can't change that. And our society has become like that. We're driven by our feelings and our passions. I got up and I didn't feel like going to work. Boss, it didn't go. Okay, I guess there you go. You didn't go to work. Well, hey, it was once a time when... You don't show up by a certain time. If you don't call in sick, you're done. (laughs) But apparently everyone's so much looking for employees, right, that you kind of have to let people do what they want. But you realize that that's that's not true in God's world. We don't get to dictate the terms to our God. We ought not to be controlled by our desires and our feelings. <clears throat> Philippians three eighteen and 19. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. God is their belly. We're driven by our, our desires, our hungers, and their glory in their shame. Normally the things that we, we would say, hey, uh, those are things we wouldn't want people to know about. And now people are saying, we want everyone to know about that. We want to put that out in the open, and we're proud about it. And mindset on earthly things. How often is it when you're talking to people, 
If I know you're a Christian, and their immediate thought is, you are some dumb ignoramus. You get that? When people talk, you are. You're, you're one of these dumb Christian fundamentalist ignoramuses. You're, you're ignorant. So, so you see how the, the finger gets pointed the other way. But because you're a Christian, you, 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 live by, you live by the rules of one book. And you can understand, hey, if uh, there was nothing special about this book, then, yeah, you probably should live by more than just one book. But there's something different about this book. It's God-breathed. And those who say that they're in the light, those who are in the know, they're outside of Christ, they're the ones who are truly ignorant. That those who are in Christ, see here, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. How often is it? How often is it that when people call us ignorant, what they don't understand is all the reasoning behind it? I was talking to someone when they said, hey, this whole idea of repentance, it's foolishness. And, and I said, really, how so? And he says, well, if you commit all these crimes, you commit all these sins, and you just at the end say you're sorry, and that's it. And it's like, well, well that, that's, that's, not quite, that's not quite right. That's not quite accurate. It's not just saying you're sorry, right? Uh, there's, there's much more than that. We talk about the grieving for sin, right? We talk about the matter of forsaking sin, right? all those things, and, and not seeing, hey, who, who brought about this repentance? Was it just this person saying, I want to get out of the consequences? Or was it the work of the Holy Spirit in this person's life? See, there's, there's so much more that, that there is behind this matter of repentance or a changed life. Think about this matter of living according to desire. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 6. The instruction from the Apostle Paul was regarding widows. But he says about her, but she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. So here, he's talking about putting widows on a list to be supported by the church. And for the younger widows, he encouraged them to get married, to have children, to take care of their homes. And he said that those who lived self-indulgent lives were dead even while they were alive. That this is true not just for the widows, it's true for people who live self-indulgent lives. That there's already death upon them. <clears throat> and so this matter of walking in darkness, walking in ignorance. I hope you can see that your new life in Jesus Christ is not ignorance. Walking in darkness is ignorance. Walking in the light is true knowledge. Yet... Even in this matter of sanctification, I hope you understand, sanctification is not merely about knowledge. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. They have all the right knowledge. But the question is, is that knowledge leading to sanctification? Is it leading to a changed life? Is it leading to holiness in your life and in mine? See, it's not just about knowing. We, we have to know in order to, to, to believe and to do, but it doesn't just end there. 
It must go beyond that. It must, must have a transformation in your life and in mine. <clears throat> so that's the second point, parting with the past. We have the third point, the paternal pattern, in verses 15 to 16. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. <clears throat> Here, we begin with God's holiness. The meaning of his holiness. In its most essential definition, it means that our God is set apart. That he is other. You ever fill out a, a, a form where they ask about you? And you have to check that box called other. Are, are you this group, that group, or other? Well, here, God is the one who is completely other. <clears throat> He's unique. He's completely set apart. And understanding that in our society, not everyone wants to be unique. But at the end of the day, only God is unique. He's holy. We think about his holiness as, as his, his purity, his a lack of sin, but his holiness is really his otherness. He's completely different. He's the, he's the creator. And then the rest of us were the creatures. And that no one else is like him. He's distinct from all his creation. Think about his holiness, his otherness. This affects the way that we worship him. In Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul is talking about, hey, He's showing the, the, the downfall, the sinfulness of man. He begins with the Gentiles. And, and for, for the Apostle Paul, apparently this is quite easy. Right? You walk through Athens. Right? You're walking through Athens, Acts 17. And you think about the, the matters of worship. That they worship things that, uh, that are made to look like animals and, and birds and, and other creatures. And the reason why... God's otherness affects how he is worshipped. Because there's only two possibilities. <clears throat> either, if we make images, they're either going to be the things that we've seen. So, creatures, right? We're attempting to worship God by images of creatures, which can't capture him. Or, if it's not what we've seen, then it's what we've imagined. So, the imaginations are usually derivative, meaning that we take combinations, so the, the head of an eagle, or the, uh, the body of a lion, or whatever's the case. So you think about what we've seen or what we imagine. And we're told that neither one can capture God. He's completely other. God is far beyond our imagination. So God's holiness. You shall be holy for I am holy. And part of, part of Christianity, <clears throat> part of sanctification, is coming to the realization that everything about life revolves around God. Right? So before be, being in Christ Jesus, it's, it's like the, the, uh, the earth-centric view. Hey, the numbers just don't seem to work out. To, to think that the whole solar system, or what we know as the solar system, it all revolves around the Earth. Somehow my calculations always seem to be off. And if we think about the, the world, everything ought to revolve around me. And nothing, nothing in its orbit seems normal. 
And you think about this is what secular humanism is. It's the measure of all. Man is the measure of all things. But here's the problem. Man's standard is constantly changing. This is why following God's standard, the standard is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's not as if uh, man or the church has always got his standard right in the past. That's another, that's another issue. But this idea of man being the measure of all things, if man is the measure of holiness, the standards seem constantly to be changing. But God's standard of holiness is himself and his son who lived the perfect life. So be holy as God is holy. Walk in the manner in which Jesus walked. The reason why the name of Jesus then is so offensive is because no one else lived the perfect life that he lived. And that when you talk about a monopoly, uh, you think about in the past there were federal laws against this antitrust laws. Well, is Jesus one who has a monopoly on salvation? When he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father except through me. It seemed like he is monopolistic in his action. He say, hey, none of those other religions save. Jesus is saying he alone saves. Right. You want to talk about being offensive. <laughs> that sounds pretty offensive. Especially if you have uh, you know, 10,000 or 100,000 different gods. Right? What's the big deal about adding Jesus to that list? Well, here Jesus say, no, 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 you can't have any others. Jesus alone saves. Here, regarding this being holiness. You shall be holy, for I am holy. Have you ever wondered, is this holiness? Is this like extra credit for the Christian? Is this, is this optional? You, know, you, put your, you put your name on an exam, you know, like a math test, and there's 100 points, and your teacher, your professor might have, at the end, extra credit. Hey, if you get this right, you get an extra 15 points. That's on top of the 100 points that you can get. It's not as if this call to holiness from God is extra credit or it's optional. It's a requirement for God's people. Hebrews 10, sorry, Hebrews 12, 18. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. It's not optional. This is required of us that we would follow our Lord Jesus, that we would be holy even as God is holy. And regarding the scope, verse 15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. In all your conduct. When we think about the, the breadth of the Ten Commandments, talk about the Ten Commandments, right? They're merely a summary, merely a summary of the, the moral requirements that God has given us. First off, we can say they're not just the letter, they're the spirit. And the commandments each address different spheres of our life. So regarding sanctification, regarding holiness that God expects holiness in every sphere of our lives. It's not just one particular sphere. I'll give me a simple example about this. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 7. Regarding the requirements for an elder, and he must have a good reputation with those outside the church. 
Well, why is that? It's because you have people who are pretenders, and they come into the church, and they could be very good pretenders. They talk the talk. They, 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 they wear the right clothes. Uh, they, they say the right things. But then one other test that God gives is how, how is this man, this candidate, how is he with those outside the church? Meaning, is, is he rubbing shoulders with those who are uh, immoral and not just interacting with them? Because we're, we're called to enact, interact with people of the world, but are, are they those who are one of them? Do they see them as their own? See, this is, this is how, if you ask an outsider, if you ask the people at work, this, this is part of the challenge of someone who is being considered for office. There ought to be questions asked to their secular employer and, and to those who work close to their co-workers, their colleagues. Hey, how, how does this person act? And that they ought to say, hey, for that person to be an elder in the church, I expect that. That is right, because this, word, this person is trustworthy. Right? He's not one who slanders the boss. He's not one who steals from the company. And so also, the scope of our conduct, holiness, should be in every sphere of our lives. How we spend our money, how we spend our time, the things that we say around the table, how we worship our God. Relationships, friendships, marriages, all these things, God's holiness is expected of us. I think also about the means means of sanctification that God uses that Jesus in John 17 says sanctify them by your truth your word is truth it's not about feelings it's not about what we feel is right it's not about our sincerity it's about God's word there's an, there's an objective standard that we ought to follow and the world often likes to push things into extenuating circumstance. But, you see, my situation is so different. Well, wait a minute. What's God's standard? And why do we find ourselves to be exempt from being held to that standard? That's already the wrong attitude. We think about the agent. Agent of our sanctification is the sanctification, the work that, was, that goes on in our transformation to be more Christ-like. Is that God's work or man's work? Perhaps the best way to answer that is from Scripture, Philippians 2, 12 to 13. So then, my beloved, just as you have all, always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure." So here, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's not as if you're earning it. God has given it to you. But there, there is a struggle. There is the shedding of blood. There, there is blood, sweat, and tears. But we're told it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That, that God is working in you, and the result is that then you would work. And if we're understanding sanctification correctly, this progressive sanctification, is that if ever we progress... In the Christian life, we progress in holiness as we should. We ought to say, glory be to God. And if ever we're not progressing, if ever uh, there's a chapter in our lives where we live in, in a very uh, unsanctified way, we never say, hey, you know what, God? You, you took it easy in that chapter. It's never the case. We, we always have to say, no, that was me failing. We give glory to God. 
You don't give blame to God. And so we ought to understand that this is how God works in us. He doesn't give up on us. He expects us that we would labor for His glory, uh, that we would desire to be holy. In Leviticus chapter 20, that we read earlier, there are a number of important passages, important verses in that chapter. Verses 7 and 8, You shall consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my statutes and practice them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. So here God is saying, hey, obey me. I'm the one who sanctifies you. That God took Israel, of all the nations, all the people groups, he set them apart. And he's saying, this is how you show yourselves to be different. You think about the book of Deuteronomy where he actually says, what nation, what people has a, have a law as holy as us? And that should cause us to ask, what nation, what people have a God as holy as ours? Verse 26, thus you are to be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy. And I have set you apart from the peoples to be mine. That God desires that we would be his treasured possession. And that that appears to in us to be our holiness. That the lives that we live, not just what we do, not just what we say, but how we think. The values that we have. That God and his greatness transforms all of those things. Perhaps some of you are asking, it seems like the battle is so great and defeat is so easy. Well, perhaps the question I'd ask is, is there a battle? Is there a battle going on? Look at Romans chapter 7, that there was a war going on in his, in his soul. Is there a resistance to the temptations that come your way? If you're, if your question to me is, what battle are you talking about? Well, then, then we need to be concerned. But is there resistance? Is there a desire to be different? Is there a desire to fight gravity, whatever you want to call it? Is there a battle going on? Are you saying, no, God has called me to follow Jesus Christ. And this is my heartfelt desire. Part of sanctification is the changing of our desires, the desire to be like Jesus. To say the manner in which Jesus walked is the, is the manner in which I desire to walk. Because he has saved me. And he has called me to be like him. So this is the matter of the battle. We also have uh, the matter of encouragement. How often is it that you desire fellowship with other people? Fellow Christians who are also part of that battle. Perhaps having uh, someone who's much older than you. Now, for those of you who are advanced in years, maybe there's fewer of those people than, than you're looking at your peers. But the bottom line is being able to associate with others who share the common struggles. How important this is in our Christian lives. You realize a soldier, a lone ranger soldier, is going to be very subject to attack. There's no one to watch his or her back. Being able to be among God's people is a very good thing. 
that he has given us the church that we might be a blessing and encouragement and a support to one another. Understand also that in sanctification, God is the one who began the good work and he will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. May we go to our God together.